Hey, as um, we open up our, our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, um, I want to tell you just a little bit about myself. Not just because I like to talk about myself, or I'm very fond of myself, or which I am, all of those things, but, um, but because I think it, what you'll find is that um, all of our stories share points of similarity. You know, um, I, I got saved in the 90s, uh, in 1997 in November. And uh, when I got saved, that was right on the heels of, you know, some pretty major drug addiction and, um, you know, just generally being, um, or feeling at least, that I, I, I was a real, just a, a loser, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and in the middle of that, God revealed to me his amazing grace. At the lowest point for me, at the lowest of the low, um, at, at the time where I thought, man, I, I have absolutely nothing to offer to God, uh, the gospel was preached to me. And, and it was the perfect it was the perfect time for me because at that particular moment when I had nothing that I could give in exchange for God's grace towards me, all I could do was receive it. I really began to understand some things about the nature of God and the character of God that are that really essential for us throughout life. And that is that when we come to him, we come to him with Nothing. We offer him nothing. There's nothing that we, that we can give to him that somehow makes our lives more valuable to him or he doesn't save us so that, we can, so that he can put an all-star on his team. He, he doesn't need Jeremy to promote the gospel and he doesn't need me to get his work done. I came to him with nothing and, um, and man, was that a joyful experience. Lord, I've got nothing to offer you. I've got only my baggage, my filth, my dirt, everything that's wrong with me. That's all I have to give you. And, and yet you love me. Despite all of that, that, I don't understand it. Grace, it's amazing. And so... After receiving the Lord, I set out promptly to prove to him I was worth it. <laughs> okay, now that you saved me, now that you gave me your unmerited, unearned, unconditional love, and, and I brought nothing to the table, now let me show you that I'm worthy of that. And so, as an early Christian, I, I, mean, I attended services, a lot of them. I even, I even stopped cussing. After a while, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> I even, you know, stopped buying cigarettes at the store. I stopped doing bad stuff. And I started really showing God, hey, hey, you know, I'm worth having because of all my good stuff. And subtly, what ended up happening happening to me is that I, I, I fell into the trap of 
of thinking that even though I was saved and by faith and justified by faith and, and through God's grace alone, he gave that to me as a gift, that salvation that I enjoyed. That somehow now I was being made perfect through my knowledge, the things that I was learning in Bible study, my attendance, the things that I was going to, Bible studies through the week, I'd go to, I got saved at Applegate, and of course they have a a service out there every day of the week, and so five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times a week, we would be going to church, making that commute out to Rouge. And it seemed to me at the time that I was doing God a great service. Until my service to God became so heavy for me that I was almost crushed by it. And I felt like I can't keep this up. I attend services. I, can, I can't. I, I fall asleep reading my Bible. And, and a wonderful thing happened because um, I was trying to learn and grow as a disciple and, and you know, become effective for God and show him I was really worth it. And, and then I found out that my body really adjusted to that quite well. So that any time I picked up my Bible and started to read, I'd start to fall asleep. But, you know, persevere. Just do it. You, this is what disciples do. This is how you make God happy. And then my dad, he... He came to me one time. He said, Jeremy, I've got a book I'd like you to read. I'd like to just check this out. It was a book called Grace Plus Nothing by Jeff Harkin. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you, that, that book radically changed my life. As once again, I found out that the gospel is not just the starting point for Christians, but it was the only point. That once again, my service to God is not so that I can show him I'm worthy of the salvation that I've received, or so that I can continue to stay in and be a part of the blessings that he's given me, but that my salvation was given to me on the basis of his grace, and that I was currently sustained by his grace, and that all my work and efforts were in response to his grace, and not to get more of it. And so we come to Ephesians this morning. And I want us to see a pattern, I think, that I hope will be helpful uh, to us in the whole of Scripture. But we're going to take our launching point uh, from Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. 
And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, literally there, his poem, his poema, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians chapter 2 is written to Christians to remind them, to say to them, hey, listen, you're not adding anything to what God has done. Do you remember what you brought to the table? You were a child of disobedience. You were at war with God. You didn't even know it following the same path of destruction that all the people who are in rebellion against God follow. That that was your lot, remember? And God intervened. God saved you by his grace. You didn't do anything to earn that, to purchase that for yourselves. You weren't trying to find God. God in his grace came and sought you out. And he saved you. And, And this... Salvation that came to you is not the result of your efforts. It's not because of what you are currently doing or had done. Because God doesn't want anybody bragging in heaven. It's only going to be one boast, and that's the boast in the Lord. (laughs) And then he goes on to say, And because of this, we are God's workmanship. Because of the salvation that that has taken place, because of the work of God's grace in our lives, we are being shaped, molded, prepared for all the work that God is going to do in our lives as a display of his workmanship, his work, his poem is being written out through our lives. It's an expression of who he is. It's a display for the world to see of who he is. Now, I love this theoretically. But I'll tell you, practically, a wrestle. Why? Because when I look at my life, I go, gosh, Lord, I'm a mess. I mean, I, I see the things that are wrong with me. If you ask my wife, I'm sure she's got a, a nice little list going somewhere of the things that are wrong with me. She, she prays about it, I'm sure, quite consistently. Lord, you know my husband needs to change in this way and in this area. Help him, change him, grow him. And... And I I wrestle with this idea that God is somehow displaying through my life the success of his grace when oftentimes I feel like my life is not a success story. 
I feel like instead of going from grace to grace, I go from failure to failure and I'm constantly having to come back and repent and constantly having to check my attitudes and adjust the way that I think. How do we resolve this? How do we live without feeling like losers forever? We know that we were saved by grace, but at some point, don't, don't we think at least that things are going to get better for us and that, you know, it's not just going to be by grace? That there's a little part of us that's valuable? We really do bring something to the table? I love Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to rabbit trail here in a little bit, so track with me, and I promise we'll come back to the main topic, okay? I love in that scripture where, where King David writes, he says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day it pours out speech, and night to night it reveals, his, it reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard, but their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. David, he's just kicking it outside in some Palestinian field somewhere. He sees the skies and he's just like, wow. You know, just tripping on the stars. He says, man, the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, verses like this, and specifically this passage, have been examined by lots of people and lots of segments of Christianity. And and, and, and people really kind of love to take that deep and, and think about, like, what does that mean that the heavens declare the glory of God? And so some people see the vastness of space, and they go... You know, the the heavens declare the glory of God because it describes for us how big God is. It it, it displays for us that that he is immense, immeasurable, eternal. We We can't fit him into a neat container. God's huge. So space and stars and galaxies, it, it, it displays for us how immense God must be And the fact that the scriptures go on to say that he carries those things in the span of his hand and that he flicked the stars into existence with his fingertips, all of those images give us an idea of the immensity of God. And I agree. Others trip out on on how the universe is so perfectly put together. I mean, when you think about it, earth itself is a is really miraculous. Space is a hostile environment. And there's a lot of space. I mean, a lot of it. And in order for life to exist, I mean, so many things have to line up just perfectly to support life on a little mud ball like Earth. And they go, man, look at the infinite wisdom of God in creation. Creation declares the glory of God because it shows to us his handiwork and his wisdom, the fact that he is infinitely wise and can piece together all the things that are necessary to support life and create solar systems and planets that revolve around suns at just the perfect distance and water cycles and gravitational pulls and the way that you know, our atmosphere reflects harmful rays from the sun. All of this is necessary for life. We could go, wow. 
God is infinitely wise. And I, I, th- I think that that's incredible as well. All of this shows the wisdom, the power, the eternality of God. But there's something else that I want us to examine today. Something that I'm, I'm going to use more as an analogy than as some total statement about God's character. So we're going to start big. I, mean, I want you to picture in your mind a, a galaxy just floating in space. You guys have seen a spiral galaxy, right? And you, see, you see this pattern of a, what looks like a cinnamon roll, right? Because I relate everything to food. So you have this you know, giant floating cinnamon roll in space, right? And it's filled with stars and planets and incredible things. And if you take that pattern and you, you blow up an image of it, there's a way that you can track it, um, the rate at which it is turning, the rate at which it's spinning mathematically. And, and, and you divide it into sections. And if you divide it into sections, what you end up with is what's, what's called the golden ratio, uh, which is like 1.613, blah, 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 a whole bunch of numbers, right? They go after that. That golden ratio is this, this ratio that, that exists in the spiral galaxy that maps out how far out it's going to expand and, and spin and, and it really contains, if you will, a mathematical way of measuring that spiral galaxy. Now that, now that pattern, though, is really interesting when you follow it out. Because that same pattern is seen also in the solar system. And, and, and the way that a, an individual star and the planets re, revolving around a, an indiv- individual star, that same pattern happens again and again as well. We, we even see it here on earth. Matter of fact, the way that your body is proportioned can be divided by 1.6133 blah, 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 blah. The, the distance between this knuckle and this knuckle and this knuckle is increasing at the same mathematical ratio of a spiral galaxy. The way that your body grows, the way that plants grow, pine cones. When you look at them, there's a spiral on on a pine cone. And if you were to look at the top view of a pine cone and you see the way that the leaves or the, the, the fragments grow around, you, you see that same pattern again as well. And you can go ridiculously small to individual flowers that you find growing in your lawn like, the, like a dandelion. And that same pattern is repeated again. You can go even smaller than that. To the human DNA and the spiral helix and the way in which it twists and the way in which it, 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 the ladder moves. One full rotation happens at the exact same rate of turn that the spiral galaxy does. Now, what's so big about that, Jeremy? You say, that's, that's fascinating, great. Why is that a big deal? Because it shows us something. It shows us that there is a point of origin for all things that have been created. It's like a thumbprint on creation 
that displays for us that God is behind all of it, pulling all the strings, that none of this is happening randomly, that there is, there is a infinitely wise mind that has determined all things that exist. And that that infinitely wise mind is really the one who is pulling the strings for everything that is. Theologically, this is a phrase that we've called sovereignty. That God is the ruler over all things. And it tells us that there is one source. There's not a multiplicity of gods. It tells us there is one mind by which everything is being created. It's a thumbprint that reminds us that there is one person who is in fact the center of all things. Whether it's human DNA or whether it's the spiral galaxy, God is the cause, the sustainer, and the finisher of everything. Patterns like this from the atomic level to the microbial to the planetary to the universal to the galactic level demonstrate evidence of design. It points us to the fountainhead of design and common thought. And mankind is always trying to understand the world around them and the things uh, that, that go on around them, make sense of a world that seems at moments to be in chaos. And so while science has its ologies and we study things like space and we study geology and biology and all these things. People have also taken the same idea to try and study God and understand him and figure him out. So we, we have the ologies of theology, right? We have um, angelology. Well, how, do Bible, how do angels work in the Bible and all of that. You have Christology. What, at what point does Christ show up in the scriptures? And cosmology and demonology and ecclesiology and eschatology and hamartiology, the study of sin. We, we want to understand. We want to pick everything apart. We want to, okay, if there's a mathematical equation for the universe, maybe there's something in our religious life and as we relate to God that's going to help us understand how he works and, and, and what's the point of all this and and how everything fits together. The problem is, is that the more that we study in the words of Solomon, we find weariness of mind and vexation of spirit. As we begin to study, we go, okay, there's so much to think about. There's so much, it's, it, it's, it's overwhelming. How many ologies do I need to know to know God? How many things do I need to understand to, to walk with him and, and have a life that pleases him? At what point am I a disciple that is following Jesus and doing a good job and he's just pleased with me and he's happy? How do we measure that? How do we track that? Ever sat and thought about the scriptures and ask yourself, what the heck is the point of this anyway? I mean, Old Testament stuff. How many of you are Old Testament scholars? Not a lot of hands. Actually, no hands. 
right? Do you, you got to know that stuff? Can you be a disciple of Jesus and not be an Old Testament scholar? How many New Testament scholars? Some of you are probably, hey, I've, I've got a good grip on the New Testament. I, can, I know where to find, you know, John 3.16. So that, you know, that qualifies me for scholarship. And you, you might have a good grip on the New Testament, but what is the overall point? We've got 66 books written by 40 different authors. What is the point? What is God trying to teach us? What does he want us to know? What is the thought of the Bible that's somehow supposed to help us? How do we unravel this? Is there a pattern? Is there a pattern like the the golden ratio, like the Fibonacci sequence? Is there a pattern there? And in an effort to understand that, some people have taken a linear approach and they say, okay, look, the Bible unfolds in time. So you have creation, which is point, point zero on the timeline. And, and as it unfolds all the way through right now, we have a, a series or a sequence of events. And that sequence of events is a, a linear display for us about God. And we can learn about who God is by looking at that display starting with creation and moving forward. Okay, and that, that has some good logic to it. I mean, the question is, how do, how do we unpack that a little? Well, some have cho- chosen to um, view the Old Testament through, through segments or acts in a play. And this is called dispensationalism. This is where they, they divide up the stories from the Bible into segments and they say, okay, God was working with mankind in this way at this time, but then things changed. So from Adam to the fall, God was dealing with mankind in innocence. They're, they're unaware of sin, okay? They don't, they've never experienced it for themselves. Once the fall happens, then that changes the way that God relates to mankind. Okay, then comes the age of conscience. That is, mankind now has a conscience. He knows the difference between what is good and what is evil and everything else. And so now um, he's living by the light of, I know what's right, I know what's wrong. And how's that end up? It ends up with Noah, right? And God having to hit the reset button on planet Earth. Then people begin to live by human government. Okay, well, we can't just live by the light of conscience. Somebody has to be referee. Somebody has to call it out. And then that ends with the Tower of Babel. And on and on and on, those segments or those dispensations of time, you can track those through all the way to the New Testament. Others, in seeking to understand the Bible, take a linear approach, and they do it from the point of promises that God has made or covenants, okay? Now, those covenants, those promises that God has made, um, describe the terms by which he has a relationship with mankind, And so they would say, those who take this covenantal view or use this method of understanding the Bible and trying to make sense of their faith, they would say that that the covenants are the means by which God tells us how we can know him. And that the Old Testament 
in particular is a display of the people of God living out their relationship with God based upon the promises that he's made to them in those covenants. The emphasis then in a covenantal understanding of the whole of history is that God makes promises, man lives according to those promises, and by that he has a relationship with God. Which also, again, that there's merit to that. The apex of that is the cross and God making a final promise to us that all of our sin would be taken away and that we would be in relationship with him forever and ever. Again, great, great grid. Here's the problem. The problem is, is that there is in, built into those things some incoherence uh, within those two systems. And, and as you begin to track it out, and I won't go into, I'm not going to bore you with the details. Uh, but there's, there's disagreement within those systems on how to work that out, how that gets live, lived out. And making sense of the Old Testament gets really muddy because you go, okay, so God was at one point, he was dealing with mankind according to laws and rules and rituals. Is it the same? And so segments of Christianity say, yeah, it's the same. Therefore, the priesthood transfers over now to a modern-day priesthood. You see? So you end up with lots and lots of divisions within the body of Christ of people trying to find some way to take what was in the Old Testament and see how it tracks forward to the New Testament, to the new way of living. And if you take the covenantal view, then there's other things. You're trying to bring that stuff forward and there's crossover and, 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 and it just is not a very clean or neat system by which to understand the way that God has revealed himself. It's inconsistent. What I want to suggest to you is a nonlinear approach. That maybe that the full story of the Bible is not so much about an unfolding of events in sequential order that reveal to us different things about God, but maybe it is the same story over and over and over and over and over again. That God is, he's saying, listen, listen to my plan. You ready? Here it is. I'm a good God. I create everything. Sin comes in, destroys it. I redeem it, and then I restore it. Okay? This motif, the creation, fall, redemption, restoration motif, is a, a lens by which we can make sense of the Old Testament. And we don't have to make the priesthood of the Old Testament be dragged into the new. And we don't have to, you know, make all the puzzle pieces fit because God is showing us no matter what man does, no matter how man relates to God, they always muck it up. But God always redeems it. And he always saves and restores his people So it's helpful for us to think of it in terms of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So I want to give you this as a a little bit of a model, and then I want to talk to you about how that relates to our original dilemma, okay? We open up with the story of creation. There is nothing. There's only God. And then God creates everything that exists. He creates the heavens and the earth, okay? And at some point there, in the heavens, the angels are created, and everything is good, and, and uh, Lucifer is leading the angels in worship. 
And then some sort of fall, we don't get all the details from scripture, some sort of fall takes place and Lucifer, the worship leader of heaven, sins and a fall happens and that relationship is, is messed up. So what does God do? How does he deal with this? What does he do with the problem? Well, he redeems it. He says, okay, angels who want to follow in this pattern of rebellion against me, you guys are going to be separated from those that don't. And I'm going to make a new worship leader. Are you ready? Lucifer, are you watching? He reaches down into the mud of the earth and he fashions a man, Adam. Here's your replacement, Lucifer. Here he is. And once again, all things are right. Worship is restored. Adam is in relationship with God. Separation from sin has taken place and restoration has happened. But then what happens? Good creation, Adam in the garden, things are going great. Sin enters the picture. Remember the story with the fruit? They eat that. Fall takes place. How does God respond? A good and gracious God covers man's sin and makes a promise to them that final freedom from sin is coming in the form of a child that would be born to Eve. And he restores to them a sense of relationship. And once again, even though there's brokenness, even, there's, even though there's continuing brokenness, relationship with God is possible as God restores. Then from the new world, after the fall until Noah, we see that God once again is, is working with mankind, relating to them, and mankind once again is drifting. So God preserves mankind through Noah. After mankind rejects God, God redeems and he restores new earth. Once again, restoration. Start over with Noah. Now we have this new thing and everything's going great. New creation. And then mankind rebels against God, builds a tower, and says, we're going to reach the heavens. And so God, once again, what does he do? A good and gracious God? He doesn't destroy, he redeems. He comes in, he scrambles the languages, he divides the planet. He makes sure that there's not a way for man to end up in ultimate and final rebellion in the same way that the angels did. And he restores. New beginning. New planet, languages, nations. God pulls out of that pool of people one nation, one man, Abraham, and builds from him a new nation. And things are great, but then it looks as though because of sin, because of a whole host of other things, they're not going to inherit the promises of God and the land that he has promised and that the kingdom that God has been seeking to build is not going to be built. And so what does God do? He intervenes. He rescues Israel out of Egypt, brings them back to the land. And once again, the story of redemption takes place. Are you seeing a pattern? 
over and over and over and over again, the story of the Bible is not one of like, learn this lesson about God here, learn this lesson about God here, learn this lesson about God here. It's this, there's one lesson. Mankind will always screw it up. And God will always redeem it. Over and over and over again. This pattern happens on macro levels as we look at the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament and on into the New. It also happens on micro levels. We see it in the individual lives of people like Abraham and Noah and David where they screw up their lives and God redeems and he restores. We see it over and over and over again. God is working for redemption. He's working for restoration. He's fighting for us. Now, back to my dilemma. I find myself oftentimes caught in this place of feeling like I'm never going to be a good enough disciple for what God is worthy of. I'm never going to worship with enough passion. I'm never going to know enough of my Bible. I'm, I'm never going to be a good enough Christian and have a great enough attitude and be a good enough husband and be a good enough father. There is no place of rest. You hear what I'm saying? There is no place of rest because I know what's in me. I know my nature. Just like you know your nature. Eventually, you're going to blow it. And you know what I say? Praise God. Praise God for that. Not because we, we long to see sin happen or we long for brokenness. Praise God because it's the reminder to us that that's the whole point. It's the whole point of everything we've been talking about this morning. You did nothing to make yourself a disciple. The story of God's redemptive work is being written out over the course of your life. Listen, what kind of message do you have this morning? What did you bring to the table this morning? How were your morning devotions? You and your wife, you, you fight in the car on the way to church and then smile at people on the way in. Do your kids love coming to church because it's a low-stress environment on Sunday mornings, getting everybody ready and out the door? We just love that. How you doing? When you think about your personal holiness, how's your personal holiness meter this morning? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty holy. I, I didn't kill anybody on the way to church. Good, that's good. Praise God for that. But if you're going to measure your holiness or your righteousness, if you're going to measure how you're doing with the Lord, don't you have to have a backdrop by which to measure that? What's our backdrop in the scriptures? What is it? Be perfect as your Father in heaven 
is perfect. What? Be holy as he's holy? What, what do you, I can't do that. Listen, Jeremy, another Bible study is not gonna help me in this department. Another time of church, another Wednesday night of communion, another time of worship is not going to fix what I got going on here because it's epidemic in me, my propensity to blow it. And I'm saying, praise God for that. It's pushing you to have a righteousness that is not based upon performance, but is based upon God's grace. If you feel like you're failing, it's because you are. If you feel like you need a savior to come in and rescue you, it's because you do. And if that brings relief to you this morning, it's because the gospel is good news. Listen, some of you are as burdened as I have been with trying to hold up our righteousness. Some of you are are caught in this spiral of thinking, if I just learn a little bit more, if I just attend services a little bit more, if I, I just try a little bit harder as a husband and as a father, as a wife and as a mother, as a disciple of Jesus, I'm, I'm finally going to reach a place where I feel good about where I am. And I would say, that's never going to happen till Jesus comes back. See, the Bible is rehearsing for us the story of God's grace and redemption over and over and over again. It's like that spiral galaxy that's seen all the way down to the human DNA. There's a stamp on every page of the Bible that's saying, listen, it's not about you. I'm at the center of the universe. It's not about your efforts. It's not about your works. I'm the one who's pulling the strings. It's not about how hard you try. It's always been about me being Savior and Redeemer and the one who restores all things. Is your marriage messed up? You worry, you know? You're here this morning. You're you're worried even now. How's this going to work out? Are we going to make it? Am I going to blow this thing up or is my spouse going to blow this thing up and I'll be wrecked forever? Listen, it doesn't matter what kind of sins have been committed or what will happen in the future. You grab a hold of God's hand and I promise you this because we see it over and over and over again. God is a redeemer. He's a restorer. And nothing is beyond his ability to redeem. Nothing. Is it your kids? Is that, is that what's troubling you? You got that one that's the rebel. And you're not sure they're going to come back to the Lord. Is, is that what's going on? Nothing is beyond the ability of God to redeem and restore. It's been the testimony of God since the beginning 
over and over and over again. He's saying, haven't I proven it to you? You can't stop me. It is my very nature. It hurts. Are you packing around wounds and hurts and baggage that constantly are reminding you that you are broken? And you feel condemned by that. You feel the weight of your own destruction. I'm going to make you a promise. You grab the hand of Jesus. You give your heart to him today and you follow him and nothing is beyond his ability to redeem. He will take those scars and he will make them shining badges, trophies of his grace in your life. I know it because I've seen it a thousand times on the pages of this book and in my life personally. God is a redeeming God. And he's restoring all things unto himself. This is the story of our lives. And if you're here today and you feel like there's some way in which your life is a mess, I've got good news for you. If you take the hand of Jesus, he will redeem. He will restore. Maybe as we're seeking to be disciples, it's less about trying to come to a place where we mentally understand all of the ologies that we've created. Not that we want to be theologically ignorant, but we're not Gnostics, right? Christian faith, our faith is not a Gnostic religion. It's not we find out secrets or knowledge that we, we get that somehow frees us up. We believe that there is an object to our faith and that object is a person, Jesus. And that because of Jesus and our faith in him, he is redeeming and restoring. It's not about psychological tips that we pull out of this book. Maybe being a disciple is not about our works and our attendance. Maybe it's about our response to the fact that we are being redeemed. Maybe today our worship isn't about our fervency, but it's about the awe, the surprise, the response of the soul to going, God, you you mean I'm not going to be broken forever? And maybe the story of the Bible that concludes in the book of Revelation with a garden and a city and multitudes without number, and the restoration of all things. Maybe the Bible is not so much about a how-to book as much as it is about a God who is a redeemer and a restorer. You are the workmanship of God, and right now, listen, If you've never taken a discipleship class, if you don't know the 66 books and their order by heart, if you still have to turn to the table of contents, 
If you could never give a Bible study, if you are sitting here as a disciple of Jesus and you go, I've got nothing to offer, and I'm saying to you this morning, if that's you, you're wrong. You are the display. You're the poem. It's every time God turns you back to his grace and puts you in that place where you go, Lord, you just love me. You just love me. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Every time I come back to that place, that is the proclamation of God's nature again and again. We are displaying to the world how brokenness is won over by a mighty God who redeems and restores. Every situation in your life right now is being worked together to display this one thing for God's glory over and over and over again. Moms, it happens when you're at home and you're, you're frustrated because you're trying to get kids together and you get angry and your kids see your fallenness, they see your brokenness and then condemnation hits and you go, oh gosh, I'm, I'm a terrible mom, I'm a terrible person. I'm, I, how are my kids ever going to walk with Jesus when they see how terrible I am on the inside? And then you turn and you go, God, it's not about me. Yes, I'm, I'm broken, but you're redeeming and you're restoring when your kids see that faith being lived out. You become a visual representation of the gospel for them. Listen, this understanding frees us from ever having to fight for our own reputation. It frees us from ever having to justify ourselves before God or man or anyone else. It puts us in a position to say at all times, Lord, to you alone be the glory. You are displaying through my life through the lives of this community of people your redemption and your love and how you restore all things. So I want you to be filled with hope today. As we wrap this up, I'll finish with the story of my own walk with God. I have found this cycle over and over and over and over again. Okay, God, I got it. You love me. Apart from what I've done, you're always, you've always been the one at the center of the universe. You've always been the one pulling the strings. It's never been about me. You love me. Okay, great. Now what can I do to show you I'm worth it? Hey, on this Memorial Day, the freedom that you now enjoy, that today, you know, this weekend, you're gonna go and kick it by a river and, you know, Try and get a tan the first one of the year, which means most of us will end up lobster red and peeling, right? What, what, did you, what did you do to earn that freedom? Nothing. You did nothing. You're just a citizen of this great kingdom, this, the United States of America. You, you get to enjoy those freedoms because... Somebody else paid the price for you to be able to do that, right? Isn't that what we're celebrating? 
And what I'm saying to you is, is that the same is true in your life right now. You get to enjoy all the benefits of being a citizen of heaven, not because of how well you perform, but because of the price that's already been paid, the life that's already been laid down, the Son of God who gave himself for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I conclude with this. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine, is our mantra. It's the thing that underpins everything that we do as believers. Why do I love and serve and follow him? Because I've been saved by grace, through faith. This is nothing that I did. It's not a work that I brought upon myself. He did it for me, and so my job is to just enjoy him. Just enjoy him. Today, if you bought an e-ticket to Disneyland, off of eBay, you know, the e-tickets from the 1970s where you could get the ABCD and e-tickets. If you got an e-ticket and you took it to Disneyland and you tried to get in with an e-ticket, they say, no, you, you, know, you pay at the door and then you can ride all the rides. So you get in, you pay, you go to the front of the, 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 the line, you wait four hours, you know, and you get up to Space Mountain and you're at the, the head of Space Mountain and you're there waiting to get on and you, you have your e-ticket and you give it to the guy. And he goes, no, 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 look, look. You, you just get to enjoy the ride because the price was paid at the door, so just, you know, get on. Oh, you say, I know what's going on here. You're shrewd, shrewd businessman. All right, here's, here's 50 bucks. Now can I ride the ride? I got my e-ticket, I got my 50 bucks. Here, can I, can I do it? No, look, dude, you're, you're crazy. You're, you're, you're stupid. Just get on. Just, dude, the price is paid. Enjoy the ride. Get on, please. Oh, you say, I, I see what's going on here. I want a little something extra, huh? You see the garbage guy over there with the bag and the, the sweeper, and you, you pommel him, you take it away, you get a big thing of garbage, you bring it up through the line again, and you, you have your e-ticket, your 50 bucks, and a bag of garbage. You say, okay, now can I ride the ride? It's like, no, stop, please, stop obsessing. Get on the ride. The price was paid. Just have fun. Just enjoy. Guys, The price has been paid. Stop fighting to get into something you're already in. You're already in the household of faith. You're already in the kingdom of God. You're already accepted in the beloved. You already are a disciple. It's time to just enjoy the ride. Amen? Lord, grab a hold of the hearts of your people as our brother Seth comes up to lead us in worship for a few times, or for a few songs. Lord, I pray that the message of your grace would pierce and penetrate deep into our hearts. That those who have found themselves burdened and weighed by the responsibility of Christianity might be, might be freed today.
that those that thought that being a disciple means you know more stuff, that they might find that they're disciples when they delight in you. Father, for those who have been weary and are oppressed by the amount of their own failings and inadequacies, God, today remind them of the goodness of your grace and of the freedom that you've given us in the gospel. That it's never been about us and our efforts and never will be. That there's one person at the center of the universe and that's you. May all praise and glory be to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.